Before we start today's story, I wanted to give you a heads up that if you're listening with kiddos, you might want to listen on your own for this one first. There's no swearing or anything like that, but as you can tell from the title of the episode, we're going to be talking about Jack the Ripper's brutal murders. So consider this your parental warning. If you're a fan of graphic novels, you know who Alan Moore is. He's made a name for himself in the industry, writing Superman and Batman comics for DC. But even if you're not a fan of graphic novels, you've probably seen, or at least heard of, some of the movies that have been created from his works. Watchmen, V for Vendetta, and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, just to name a few. While some people would be ecstatic to have their work adapted for the silver screen, Alan wasn't. He'd written the stories like Watchmen specifically as comics and wasn't a fan of having them turned into films, a completely different medium. But that didn't stop it from happening. Despite his not liking the idea of having his work turned into movies, Today, we're going to be looking at the film that led the way when it was released in 2001 after being adapted from a graphic novel of the same name. Today, we're going to be doing a bit of true crime as we compare history with From Hell. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is based on a true story. Before we travel back in time, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three facts. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, many of Jack the Ripper's victims had their throats cut from left to right. Number two, there were 11 murders linked to Jack the Ripper, not six like the movie shows. Number three. Jack the Ripper's murders were unsolved at the time, but today we know who he was. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. And I wanted to say a big thank you to Nikki for becoming an official producer of the show, now, if you're not sure what that means, as a producer of the show, Nikki got to pick a movie and have it jump to the front of the line. And she picked From Hell, hence today's episode. <laughs> oh, and producers also get early access to episodes before anyone else, along with some exclusive bonus episodes. For example, I've got a bonus episode going out to a company, this one, that dives a little deeper into the story with some of the letters that Jack the Ripper wrote, read by yours truly. It's some pretty chilling stuff, but if you enjoy today's episode, you might enjoy that as well. If you want to get access to that, you can hop on over to basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Thank you so much, Nikki, for your support and for helping keep the lights on here at the show. Okay, you ready? Let's compare history with Hollywood's version of From Hell. One day, men will look back and say, I gave birth to the 20th century. Jack the Ripper, 1888. 
That quote is the very first thing we see on screen as the movie begins. Unfortunately, that's not something the real Jack the Ripper ever said. Which, I guess if he had talked about giving birth to the 20th century in 1888, it'd be a little strange since he'd be saying that over a decade too early. Although, it's worth pointing out that while the quote may not have been something the real Jack the Ripper said, the date is accurate. And so is the text on the next scene where we find out that this is happening in the Whitechapel district. That's in the east end of London. After establishing the time and place, we're introduced to Mary Kelly as played by Heather Graham as she walks along the street saying a friendly hello to many of the other women she passes. Then, after a brief run-in with the Nickel Street Gang, where we learn that Mary's being forced to pay protection money, we meet some of Mary's other friends that are some of the main characters in the film, including Mary, who's often referred to in historical documents as Marie Kelly. There's six women getting washed up as we see them for the first time. The others are, in no particular order, Liz Stride, as played by Susan Lynch, Dark Annie Chapman, as played by Katrin Cartledge, Kate Eddowes, as played by Leslie Sharp, Martha Tabram, as played by Samantha Spiro, and Polly Nichols, as played by Annabelle Apsion. All of those women are real, although it's worth pointing out that we don't really know if these women really knew each other and if they were actually friends like the movie shows. What we do know, though, is that they were all prostitutes in the same area of London. So there's a chance they knew each other, but seeing as many of the working women of Whitechapel back in the day weren't exactly very well off, that also mean that there's little to no documentation of their day-to-day life. So even if they were good friends like the movie suggests, there'd really be no way of knowing. There's one more woman I didn't mention, though. Her name is Anne Crook, and she's played by Joanna Page. I didn't mention her because she's the one who walks up with a baby after we're first introduced to the other six ladies first. Anne tells the story after she walks up of how she's been taken care of by a rather well-off man, the father of the baby. That man's name, according to Anne, is Albert. Again, both of those people are real. Well, Anne is usually referred to by historians today as Annie Crook. As for the father of the baby, although they don't really explain who he is until later on in the movie, I'm going to go ahead and spoil it for you and let you know that Albert was, as the movie says later, Prince Albert Victor. Prince Albert was a member of the royal family in the United Kingdom as the son of Edward and Alexandra of Denmark. He was the Prince of Wales, heir to the throne of Great Britain, older brother of Prince George and grandson of Queen Victoria. Although his father wasn't king when he was born in 1864, when his grandmother, Queen Victoria, passed away in 1901, Albert's father became King Edward VII. Speaking of Anne and Albert, going back to the movie, the next plot point in the movie that we see is a scene where we see the couple having sex. Then, Ben Kidney bursts into the room with a couple of goons and hauls them off. Oh, and Ben Kidney, who's played by Terrence Harvey, is a fictional character. Although, he could have been modeled after a real person at the time named Michael Kidney. In the movie, Anne and Albert are taken away in two different carriages. We never see where Albert goes, but we see Anne get interrogated by Kidney. He keeps saying, who knows, who knows? 
the movie doesn't really tell us why he's trying to interrogate Anne, why he's trying to find out who knows. But we later find out that he was trying to learn who else knows about the baby Anne and Albert had. After this, still in the movie's storyline, we see the first murder. It's Samantha Spiro's character, Martha Tabram. She parts ways with Mary, who's taking Anne's baby to her parents, Anne's parents, that is, while Martha is going back to work. Suddenly, Martha is pulled into a dark corner. Amid Martha's muffled screams, all we can see is the glint of a knife, stabbing. With each stroke, a little more blood covers the knife. The specifics of how the murder happened was fictionalized for the film on the account of, well, the obvious. By that, what I mean is that to this day, we don't know for sure who Jack the Ripper really was. And sadly, it is true that Martha was murdered in Whitechapel on Tuesday, August 7th, 1888. So there's not going to be any reports or documents of an event only witnessed by two people, one of whom we don't know who it is and the other one being murdered. But was it Jack the Ripper? Maybe. Even though the movie never comes out and shows the killer, we get the implication that maybe it was. In truth, we don't really know. At the time, the viciousness of Martha's murder, 39 stab wounds, led the police to connect it to the slew of Jack the Ripper murders that followed hers. But more recently, a lot of historians and other various experts who have studied the Jack the Ripper mystery extensively have suggested perhaps her murder was not connected to Jack. One of the big reasons for that is because Martha's murder was unlike any of the others. She was stabbed instead of slashed. But it was still a brutal murder of a prostitute around the same time and in the same place, so maybe there is a connection. Speaking of which, the movie never mentions this at all, but there was another murder that actually happened before Martha that some today think might be a victim of Jack's. That would be another prostitute named Emma Smith. She was attacked and raped on Tuesday, April 3rd, 1888. That's 126 days before Martha was murdered. But the reason the police of the time did not connect Emma to Jack while they did connect Martha was because Emma didn't die. She survived the attack and told the police that she had been assaulted by either two or three men. She wasn't really sure. One of them, though, she said was really young. Sadly, she developed peritonitis after the attack. That's an inflammation of the inner wall of the abdomen and something she'd contracted because during the rape, the attackers apparently used a blunt object so forcefully that it ruptured that lining. Emma passed on the morning of April 4th, 1888, the day after the attack. So does that mean Jack the Ripper is actually multiple people? Maybe. Maybe not. Some have suggested maybe Emma wasn't a victim of Jack, but rather a local gang. In the movie, there's the mention of the Nickel Street Gang, and well, we don't really know specifics about the people involved in local gangs like that. We do know that there were multiple gangs in the streets of Whitechapel in 1888. Or maybe Emma really was the first victim of Jack the Ripper, and she recognized him, so she deliberately led the cops down the wrong path because she was afraid that he would finish the job. Or maybe she'd been attacked by her own employers, or pimps basically, who were using her as an example for other prostitutes. There's a lot of theories, 
will just have to be satisfied without knowing the truth. Going back to the movie, after Martha's murder, we're introduced to Johnny Depp's version of Inspector Frederick Aberline. As a little side note, if you've read the graphic novel that the movie is based on, he's Frank Aberline. And maybe it's just me, but I've never heard the name Frank used as a shortened version of Frederick. So we could come to the conclusion that Frank Aberline is fictionalized version of the real Frederick Aberline. However, it seemed that the movie is a little bit more accurate than the graphic novel here because the real person's name was actually Frederick Aberline, and he was the chief inspector for the London Metropolitan Police who was assigned to the murders that would turn out to be the Jack the Ripper victims. Although throughout the movie, Johnny Depp's version of Frederick Aberline has a bit of a special power where he sees visions of the killings, a special power that seems to be induced mostly when he's high on drugs. And since we were just speaking about the graphic novel, it's worth pointing out that in there, Frank Aberline didn't have that sort of special power. Instead, he actually met up with a man named Robert James Lee, and it was Lee who was a clairvoyant claiming to see the murders in his visions, not Aberline. Again, that's a comparison between the graphic novel and the movie. Speaking of which, let's hop back to the movie's timeline. And the next major plot point happens when we're introduced to a couple more characters. William Gull, who's played by Ian Holm, and Dr. Farrell, who's played by Paul Rees. William is explaining a medical process while Dr. Farrell performs it on a girl tied down in the center of a bunch of medical students looking on. The girl is Anne Crook, who we saw earlier. The procedure is a lobotomy, removing the connections to the frontal lobe of the brain. As William Gall explains it in the movie, this simple procedure will cure the violent form of the poor girl's dementia permanently. Except Anne was fine. She had no issues before this procedure. We know this from seeing her earlier in the film as a happy girl enjoying life with Albert and their newborn baby, Alice. So, something fishy is going on. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com/tos for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks Earnin. And again, the movie is showing something that we just don't know is true. But I suppose that also means we don't know it's not true. Hence why there's been so many debates back and forth for centuries. But that's way too much than we could hope to cover in a single episode. 
For the sake of our story today, though, let's summarize this theory because it's really the plot for the theory for both the graphic novel from hell and the movie. Do you remember the baby that Anne Crook had with Albert earlier in the movie? Well, according to this version of the story, Annie Crook got pregnant and married Albert. If you recall, Albert was none other than Prince Albert Victor. So the marriage and the baby meant that the child, whose name was Alice Margaret, might have a claim to the throne. We don't really know how legitimate that claim would have been, but it seems that nobody wanted to find out. To make sure it never got out, Annie had the lobotomy to remove her memory. Then Sir William Gall, who at that point was a surgeon connected to the royal family, enlisted the help of a couple other men to silence Annie's friends, the six other women that we were introduced to earlier. And just like the movie suggests, according to this version of the story, Sir William Gall is Jack the Ripper. He's sent by the royal family to hide the fact that Britain's heir to the throne had a child with somebody that they deemed unworthy, Annie. Seemingly on his own, Sir William Gall decides to turn the women into a Masonic ritual series of killings, perhaps in an attempt to further distance the murders from the crown. Then, as we saw at the very end of the movie, William Gall himself is silenced with a lobotomy, the same way that he silenced Anne Crook. At least, that's how the story goes, and for what it's worth, the movie is pretty faithful to this version of the story. Unfortunately, we just don't know if any of that is true. Let's start with Annie Crook. We don't have any records indicating that she lived anything but a normal life. In fact, some historians point to an Annie Crook living in the Upper Rathbone Place area of London in 1891, along with a child named Alice Margaret as being the one and same Annie Crook for our story. If you happen to have an Ancestry.com subscription, you can actually find the census records to see her listed there living with Annie's parents, William and Sarah. And if that's the same Annie Crook with little Alice, then it would seem to call into question the storyline that both the graphic novel and the movie follow, that Annie was lobotomized and living out the rest of her life not at home, but rather shrouded in anonymity in a mental hospital. Some historians have even managed to track down what they claim was Annie's life through her eventual death in 1920, including multiple instances of her holding down jobs along the way, not something you'd get from someone locked away in a mental ward. What then of Sir William Gall? Well, he was a real person, and he was, like this version of the story suggests, a surgeon. He rose from a rather obscure background to prominence toward the end of 1871 when he successfully treated the then Prince of Wales, Edward, after he came down with typhoid fever. Saving the future king's life helped William's status, and he was given a baronship, as well as being named the physician in ordinary to Her Majesty. Queen Victoria. Although it's worth pointing out that the real William Gall never seemed to get a lobotomy like the movie suggests. Instead, in 1887, William Gall suffered a stroke that he feared was but the first of many to come. And he was right. He'd end up suffering numerous strokes over the next couple of years. Maybe, as some have suggested, William Gall's stroke in 1887 caused something to go wrong in his mind that led to the killings. If you recall, the first of the Jack the Ripper victims passed away in April of 1888, assuming that Emma Smith was indeed his victim. 
If you recall from the movie, it's implied that the Queen had something to do with the murders when we see Ian Holmes' version of Sir William Gall receiving his marching orders of silencing the women from none other than Queen Victoria, who's played by Liz Moscrop, by the way. And perhaps that's one reason why this version of the story was held onto for so long. It's held so much weight for so long. After all, how spicy of a conspiracy is it that Jack the Ripper was actually commissioned by the throne itself? Maybe Jack the Ripper was born out of a perfect storm of sorts when Sir William was asked to cover up Prince Albert's child and the strokes that Sir William suffered around the same time. And maybe all of it was covered up by Queen Victoria. Or maybe not. Either way, we'll never know. What we do know is that, unlike what we see in the movie, Sir William Gall was never lobotomized. Instead, his health deteriorated after his first stroke in 1887, like we learned about. Then, on January 27, 1890, he suffered what would be his final stroke. Then, on January 29th, Sir William Gall passed away. Now, we haven't really mentioned it until now, but the timing of Sir William's death could itself be what suggests he was not Jack the Ripper. You see, despite what the movie shows, the final murder tied to Jack the Ripper was in 1891, after Sir William died. Well, maybe. Now would be a good time to go over the victims. There's more than the six women we see killed in the movie. In all, there are 11 women believed to have been victims of Jack the Ripper. Although, as is the case with just about everything in this sad story, we just don't know how many of them were actually Jack's victims. We already learned about Emma Smith, who was attacked and raped on Tuesday, April 3rd, 1888. She died the next day as a result of the attack, making her what many consider to be the first victim of Jack the Ripper. Then there was the first murder that we see in the movie, Martha Tabram. Now, as we learn, some don't think that she was a victim of Jack the Ripper since she was stabbed 39 times, but others do. She was murdered on Tuesday, August 7, 1888. The next murder was on Friday, August 31, 1888. That was Polly Nichols. At least, that's her name in the movie. In the graphic novel, they more accurately name her as Mary Ann Nichols. Polly was her nickname. Although the movie shows Johnny Depp's version of Inspector Aberline come into the picture after Martha's murder, it was after Polly's murder that the real Inspector Aberline was brought onto the case. Even though they weren't sure if Polly's death was linked to Emma's or Martha's, the murders of women in close proximity and close timing was something that led cops at the time to think that there might have been a serial killer on the loose. Well, they would have if the term serial killer had existed back then, but you know what I mean. The reason they thought there might be a connection had to do with the manner in which Polly was murdered, something the movie gets pretty accurate. Polly's throat was slit from left to right. Not once, but twice. As if that wasn't enough, her abdomen had been ripped apart with several deep gashes, likely with the same knife used to slit the throat. Then, as the police were trying to figure out what happened to Polly, another body showed up. This time, it was Dark Annie Chapman. Again, that's what the movie calls her. And like Polly, that was her nickname. Her friends called her Dark Annie because she had dark brown hair. Annie Chapman's body was found on Saturday, September 8, 1888. Like Polly, Annie's throat had been slit from left to right. And like Polly, Annie's abdomen had been mutilated. 
but the coroner would later suggest that the cuts had been made with a very fine blade, the kind a doctor would use in surgery. Interestingly, her body was found in the backyard of a home occupied by a dozen people at the time. No one had seen or heard anything. After Annie was Elizabeth Stride, or Liz as she's called in the movie, in the movie we see Liz get murdered, something different happens. For the first time, someone stumbles upon Sir William and his coachman, Jason Fleming's character, Netley, while Liz is still alive. Netley, who is muffling Liz's screams at this point, yells at the unnamed man who moves on. Then, Liz's body is discovered later. Of course, there's no way to know if this is how it happened or not, but it could have been. At about 1 a.m. on Sunday, September 30th, 1888, Elizabeth Stride's body was discovered lying in a pool of blood with a slit across her throat from left to right. By the account of the man who discovered the body, the man was Louis Deimschitz, the body was still warm, suggesting that Elizabeth had been murdered just moments before he stumbled upon it. He thought perhaps he had even scared off the killer. Unlike Polly or Annie, though, Elizabeth's body wasn't mutilated. Or maybe it was just that the killer didn't have enough time to mutilate it before Louis happened upon the scene. We don't know. According to the movie, as Johnny Depp's version of Inspector Aberline and the cops are arriving on the scene of Elizabeth's murder, we see a dark shadow cover the screen in front of another woman. It's Leslie Sharp's version of Kate Eddowes. All we hear is, Excuse me, miss. And the shadow passes across the screen, blanketing it in darkness for the fraction of a second. When we can see Kate again, her hands are on her throat, with blood spurting through her fingers as she slides down the wall. Then there's a commotion, another body. The cops rush to the scene, and we see Inspector Aberline arrive to find a message scrawled in chalk. Well, dramatized, of course, the basic gist of all of that is true. If it is true that Louis Daimschutz stopped the killer when he found Elizabeth Stride's body still warm at one o'clock in the morning on September 30th, then the killer went right back to work. At about 1.45 a.m., Catherine Eddowes' body was found. Unlike Elizabeth's body, though, the killer apparently had the time to finish his work on Catherine. Her throat was slit from left to right, from what the coroner concluded was a sharp knife at least six inches in length. Catherine's face was cut open, as was her abdomen, and her intestines were strung up over her right shoulder. There was a smaller, completely separated piece of intestine strung along her left arm and chest. Finally, the coroner later concluded that Catherine's kidney and uterus were removed. Well, most of it anyway. The doctor arriving on the scene estimated that she'd been dead for no longer than ten minutes. Just like in the movie... About 1,500 feet away from where Catherine's body was found, there was a piece of her apron covered in blood. That's about 500 meters or so, and the clothing led the police to find the writing on the wall. And the movie got that pretty close. In the movie, the message is, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Jews being spelled J-U-W-E-S. In truth... The message said, The Jews are not the men who will be blamed for nothing. Again, Jews being spelled 
J-U-W-E-S. Although the movie is correct in showing that the police commissioner wanted the words erased, in the movie, it's Ian Richardson's character, Sir Charles Warren, playing the commissioner. And that was the real commissioner's name at the time. At this point, the murders were already causing a media frenzy, and fearing that the words would spark an anti-Semitic riot, Commissioner Warren ordered the words erased when he arrived on the scene at about 5 o'clock in the morning. The surgical precision to remove Catherine's organs were something that led the cops at the time to assume that the killer had to have known quite a bit about the position of organs in the body. Basically, the killer was probably a surgeon. But even that was debated at the time. Other doctors suggested there's no way it was a surgeon. Oh, and there's one scene in the movie where both the graphic novel and the movie gets its name. That comes when Johnny Depp's version of Inspector Aberline receives a letter from the killer along with a kidney. According to the movie, the letter has the words, From Hell, on it. That's true, although it was really sent to George Lusk. We haven't talked about him at all, but he's got a small role in the movie played by Vincent Franklin. George was a local businessman who had been elected to be the chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee during the murder spree from Jack the Ripper. So he wasn't a police officer, but he was sort of a citizen's liaison to the police. At the height of the murders in October of 1888, George Lusk asked for extra police protection at his home because he had spotted what he described as a sinister-looking man with a beard watching his home. Then, one day, he received this chilling letter alongside a box with half a human kidney inside. This is the letter now known as the From Hell letter from Jack the Ripper. From Hell. Mr. Lusk. Sir. I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out, if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. Can you imagine getting that at your home? That was just one of the letters that Jack the Ripper sent. In fact, even though the From Hell letter is signed by Catch Me When You Can, we get the name Jack the Ripper from a different letter. As with just about everything in this case, not everyone agrees that the letter signed as Jack the Ripper was authentic, but I'll make sure to include more of those in the bonus episode for producers. In the movie, there's one more murder. It's the dramatic end of the movie where we see Heather Graham's character, Mary Kelly, asleep in her bed. Or... Is it really Mary? Meanwhile, there's an epic escape going on as Johnny Depp's version of Inspector Aberline, who at this point has a thing for Mary Kelly, gets kidnapped by Sir William Gall's Masonic associates. With ample time, Sir William arrives at Mary's home and begins his work. We don't see much other than the result, a room covered in blood. Everywhere. Then he pulls out his surgical kit and removes Mary's heart which he cooks over the fire. After this, in the movie, we find out that it wasn't really Mary. It seemed that she managed to get away, taking baby Alice back to her seaside home in Ireland. Instead, the woman murdered was Ada, a newcomer to the areas played by Estelle Skornik. 
The brutality of the murder was right. Was it Mary Kelly? Well, they didn't have DNA testing, so we don't really know for sure, I guess, but she was positively identified by a man named Joseph Barnett. He's not really in the movie at all, but he is in the graphic novel as the man who Mary was living with. And that's more accurate than the movie, which seems to have added the romantic relationship between Inspector Aberline and Mary Kelly. That wasn't really in the graphic novel. In fact, Inspector Aberline was married in the book to his second wife, Emma, just like he was in real life at the time. Something else the movie portrays with Heather Graham's version of Mary is that she had red hair. Remember Dark Annie, who got her nickname because of having dark brown hair? Well, it would seem that Mary had the nickname Black Mary on the account of her having black hair. But then again, she also had the nickname Ginger, so even that has some rather conflicting reports. As for the murder itself, unfortunately, the movie is accurate in depicting a brutal scene. In fact, if anything, the movie probably doesn't show the full extent of the brutality. He's not in the movie at all, but Dr. Thomas Bond was one of the physicians who examined the body after it was discovered on Friday, November 9th, 1888. For a long time, his report had gone missing, but then, in 1987, it was anonymously returned to Scotland Yard. That's a mystery for another day. I know I started off this episode with a parental advisory, but I'll give you another one right now. This is a small excerpt from Dr. Bond's notes regarding the state of Mary's body when it was discovered. If you'd rather not hear it, feel free to skip ahead. I wouldn't blame you. Oh, and if you're like me and unfamiliar with one of the words used, it's not really commonly used these days, supine, that basically means lying face up. The body was lying naked in the middle of the bed, the shoulders flat, but the axis of the body inclined to the left side of the bed. The head was turned on the left cheek. The left arm was close to the body with the forearm flexed at a right angle and lying across the abdomen. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress, the elbow bent and the forearm supine with the fingers clenched. The legs were wide apart, the left thigh at right angles to the trunk and the right forming an obtuse angle with the pubes. The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all round, down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts, the uterus and kidneys with one breast under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side, and the spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on the table. The bed clothing at the right corner was saturated with blood, and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about two feet square. The wall by the right side of the bed and in a line with the neck was marked by blood which had struck it in a number of separate slashes. There's more. Too much more. I'll include more of his notes along with the bonus episode for producers, but for our purposes today, it's worth pointing out that Dr. Bond would go on to mention that the pericardium, the cavity where the heart lies, was cut open and the heart was missing. Oh, 
And Dr. Bond also remarked in his notes that the mutilations were more in line with a butcher cutting up dead animals. He said there was no reason to believe the mutilation was done with any sort of surgical precision by someone with knowledge of human anatomy. In the movie, Mary is the last of the murders that we see. Ian Holmes' version of Sir William Gall gets a lobotomy to cover up the murders, and the matter is considered resolved by Queen Victoria. As we already learned, the real Sir William ended up passing away in 1890 from one of many strokes that he'd had over the course of a few years. So what then of the murders that happened after he died? Well, it's true that many believe Mary Kelly was indeed the final victim of Jack the Ripper. Following this hypothesis, the suggestion is that after Mary was murdered, Jack was captured, perhaps on another charge not even connected, and locked away. The murders ended. And it is true that after the vicious nature of Mary's murder, the police stepped up their effort even more. A massive search was underway, and the police even published an open pardon to anyone who might be associated with Jack the Ripper. Anyone but the person who actually performed the murders would get a pardon if they helped the police catch the murderer. Maybe it worked. Maybe Mary Kelly was Jack the Ripper's final victim. Maybe it didn't. A little over a month after Mary Kelly was murdered, a police constable on patrol in Whitechapel discovered another body. It belonged to a woman named Rose Milet. But unlike Jack's other victims, Rose died not from a slit throat, but from strangulation. After Dr. Bond analyzed Rose's body, he came to the conclusion that there weren't any signs of struggle. Perhaps Rose had accidentally strangled herself by hanging while drunk. Then again, Emma Smith and Martha Tabram didn't have their throats slit either. And that's one reason why many don't think that they're associated with Jack's killings. Interestingly, Rose Milet knew and even lived in the same house as Emma Smith for a while. As for signs of struggle, if you remember, Elizabeth Stride was murdered near an occupied home. They'd concluded that there were no signs of struggle in that case either. If Rose was one of Jack's victims, she was the final one for 1888. Sadly, possibly not the last, though. On Wednesday, July 17, 1889, the body of Alice McKenzie was found. Her throat had been slit from left to right. And like some of Jack's earlier victims, the abdomen had been mutilated. However, the cuts on the abdomen weren't quite as deep, indicating that a shorter knife had been used than the one in Jack's earlier killings. As a result, there were some conflicting thoughts. Some thought the slit throat and mutilations suggested that Alice was another of Jack's victims, while others, including Inspector Aberline, did not agree. Speaking of mutilations that caused controversy about whether or not it was Jack's victims, a couple months after Alice's body was found on Tuesday, September 10th, 1889, a torso was found in Whitechapel near Pynchon Street. Despite a search of the area, no other body parts were found and the torso could never be identified. Some suggest that since it was found in Whitechapel and obviously was a mutilated body, it must be Jack the Ripper while others suggest that perhaps this torso was linked to another rash of killings in London. We haven't even talked about those yet, and they're typically not associated with Jack the Ripper, but right around that same time, there were a series of murders in London's East End, of which Whitechapel is just one of the districts, that 
began as one murder in 1887, in which the only evidence left was a torso. Then, in 1888, another victim was murdered, and two more in 1889. Each time, the killer left behind a torso, hence the name The Thames Torso Murders. Could the Pynchon Street torso be connected to Jack the Ripper, or was that the work of the Thames Torso Killer? Or could it be that they're one and the same? Those are all questions left unanswered. Two years after Alice and the Pynchon Street torso were discovered, the final victim, sometimes associated with Jack the Ripper, was found. That was of a 25-year-old woman named Frances Cole, the same age as Mary Kelly when she was murdered. Frances's body was discovered on Friday the 13th in February of 1891. Again, it seems that her body was discovered just moments after the murder. It happened around 2.15 a.m., While many think Frances Cole was not a ripper killing, her throat was cut from left to right, and then back again, right to left. With her murder, there might have finally been a break in the case. She had been seen with a man named James Sadler earlier, someone who the police had on their list of suspects to be Jack the Ripper. After Frances was murdered, they arrested James for her murder. Unable to find any more proof, they had to release him on March 3rd, 1891. Oh, and as a little side note, James Sadler wasn't on the police's short list of suspects. There were a few men that they were looking at closer than others. They were in no particular order. Francis Tumblety, Aaron Kamenisky, Michael Ostrog, and Montag Druitt. Then there was Chief Inspector Aberline's favorite for the murders, a man named Severin Klosowski. He went by the much easier to pronounce George Chapman. While those might be considered the primary suspects at the time of the murders, they weren't the only suspects overall. Even Lewis Carroll, the guy who wrote Alice in Wonderland, has ended up on the suspects list for some The fear and terror that gripped the streets of Whitechapel has been something that countless historians, experts, and others have tried to solve ever since. Ripperologists, that's the name for true crime buffs who become obsessed with the search for the man that might have been the real Jack the Ripper, even to this day. Or woman. Inspector Aberline thought perhaps it could have been a female killer. In all, There have been well over 500 suspects, some with closer connections, like the storyline of Prince Albert Victor and Sir William Gall, both of whom are on that list of suspects. Of course, as we learned, there's no way Sir William could have been Jack the Ripper if it is indeed true that Francis Cole was a Ripper victim since her murder was after Sir William died. Over a hundred years after Jack the Ripper's last murder, a massive clue broke the case wide open. That was in 1992, when a remarkable diary surfaced. Without ever writing their own name across over 9,000 words, the author confesses to the murder of five women in London and another prostitute in Manchester, some 200 miles or 322 kilometers to the north of London. Well, I guess saying the author never gave their name is not entirely accurate, At the very end of the diary, after all of the confessions, the author wrote these words. I give my name, 
but all know of me. So history do tell what love can do to a gentleman born. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Dated this third day of May, 1889. As you can probably guess, this caused a new whirlwind of theories and ideas, including the fact that the diary itself was a hoax. After all, why, after all this time, had it come to light? The man who produced it, Michael Barrett, claimed he got it from a friend, Tony Devereaux, in 1991. Unfortunately, Tony died soon after giving it to Michael, so the trail stops there. Is it a forgery? Maybe. But what if it's not? According to researchers like Bruce Robinson, who spent years researching the subject matter, and Robert Smith, who authored the book 25 Years of the Diary of Jack the Ripper, The True Facts, the diary is not only authentic, but Michael Barrett didn't reveal his true source of the diary out of fear of being charged with a crime. It seemed that the diary was discovered in a Liverpool home of a man named James Maybrick. That would seem to line up with the contents of the diary. Even though the author of the diary never comes out and says their name, most historians agree that with the other events and things mentioned within, it all points to it belonging to James Maybrick. He's not in the movie at all, but James Maybrick was a cotton merchant who lived in Liverpool. On April 27, 1889, James's health suddenly declined until passing away 15 days later on May 11th. Do you remember the date at the end of the diary? May 3rd. What if James knew that he was dying and the diary was his deathbed confession of sorts? Doctors determined the cause of death to be arsenic poisoning and immediately James's wife Florence was arrested and charged with the murder. She received a life sentence but was released in 1904 and lived until passing on October 23, 1941. So was James Maybrick the infamous Jack the Ripper? Maybe. If so, that would mean the murders of Alice McKenzie and Francis Cole weren't Jack's victims since they both happened after James died in May of 1889. And for that matter, it would also mean that the Pynchon Street torso wouldn't be connected to Jack either. Many already don't consider those murders to be connected to Jack, so that doesn't necessarily discount James Maybrick. In 2011, a man named Jose Abad proposed a different theory. Jose is a handwriting expert who compared the writing from Jack the Ripper's diary to other handwriting from suspects at the time. He believes he found a match in none other than Inspector Frederick Aberline, the police officer in charge of the investigation for the murders. And while entirely circumstantial, the dates could line up with all of the women even possibly thought to be Jack's victims. The last of those, of course, being Francis Cole, who was murdered on February 13, 1891. Inspector Aberline retired from the police on February 8, 1892, before taking over the European arm of the United States Pinkerton National Detective Agency for over a decade. It would seem he wasn't done with detective work. He just wanted a change of scenery. On December 10, 1929, Frederick Aberline passed away from natural causes at the age of 86. Three months later, his wife of more than 50 years, Emma, passed away as well. So was Inspector Frederick Aberline the infamous Jack the Ripper? Maybe.
This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. Have you ever seen those movies where you get to the end and it turns out that everything was a dream? I feel like this episode is one of those films. Was anything in From Hell even real? I mean, sure, the people and places were real. The murders, sadly, were real. But did they happen how the movie suggests? Was the storyline real? For that matter, are any of the other Jack the Ripper storylines real? We just don't know. We don't know if the diary is real. We don't know if it is Inspector Aberline's handwriting. No matter how many supposed answers we find, the only thing that is certain is that we just don't know. To start digging into some of the other theories and potentially other suspects and storylines about Jack the Ripper, there's a couple places I'd recommend. First, start with a graphic novel that the movie is based on. Yeah, it's not going to be historically accurate, but it's worth reading, even if it's to see how they changed the movie. For example, in the movie, we see Johnny Depp's version of Inspector Aberline die at the end, but that never happened in the graphic novel. I'd also recommend Robert Smith's book, 25 Years of the Diary of Jack the Ripper, The True Facts, to learn more about the diary or Jose Abed's book that dives deeper into the concept that Chief Inspector Frederick Aberline might have been Jack the Ripper. That book is called Jack the Ripper, the Most Intelligent Murderer in History. Another great resource is a website called Casebook Jack the Ripper. They've got a lot of facts and theories laid out in a great way to help you start digging deeper. You can find that at casebook.org or hop on over to basedonatruestorypodcast.com and I'll add links to those books and plenty more resources to begin your deep dive into the story of Jack the Ripper. Before we get to the answer to the two truths and a lie game, here's another five-star review. This one is a very brief review and it comes from Janine Gill over on Apple Podcasts and it says, really interesting, love hearing the real stories that inspire films. I'll keep my reply brief as well. Thanks so much, Janine Gill. And while I'm thanking people, I want to say another thank you to Nikki for helping me keep the lights on here at the show by becoming an official producer and for picking From Hell as the topic for today's episode. Thanks, Nikki. Now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, many of Jack the Ripper's victims had their throats cut from left to right. Number two, there were 11 murders linked Jack the Ripper, not six like the movie shows. Number three, Jack the Ripper's murders were unsolved at the time, but today we know who he was. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number three. Or is it? (laughs) Call it a bit tricky, but I thought with the subject matter today, it'd be fitting to answer this the same way we did with everything else in our story. Maybe. Looking through the lens of history, do we know who Jack the Ripper was? There's a lot of people out there who are convinced that we know who Jack the Ripper was. It was Prince Albert Victor himself, or it was James Maybrick, or it was Chief Inspector Frederick Alberline, or it was George Chapman, or it was Dr. Francis Tumblety, somebody who we didn't even really talk about in this episode, or it was Sir William Gall. While we know a lot more now than we did at the time, And there's some pretty damning evidence. But I think too much time has passed to know for certain. So that means, in my personal opinion, number three is the incorrect answer. As infuriating as it is to have 
such a mystery left unanswered, I don't think we can conclusively say without a shadow of a doubt that we know who Jack the Ripper was. Although, you'll get a pass if you guess number two. As we learned, there were a total of 11 women who might have been killed by Jack the Ripper. That's why I said linked and not confirmed. Although, there were five of them that a majority of people think were Jack's victims. The rest are up for debate. Now, as fascinating as a mystery like the one to figure out who Jack the Ripper is, I think it's important to not forget the poor women who died such horrible deaths. So as a final recap, lest we forget the names of the victims, these first two women are debated as to whether they're Jack's victims or not, but they still deserve to be remembered. Emma Smith, Tuesday, April 3rd, 1888. Martha Tabram, Tuesday, August 7th, 1888. These five women are almost certainly Jack's victims. They're also the women that writer Alan Moore dedicated his graphic novel, From Hell, to. Marianne Polly Nichols, Friday, August 31st, 1888. Annie Chapman, Saturday, September 8th, 1888. Elizabeth Stride, Sunday, September 30th, 1888. Catherine Eddowes, Sunday, September 30th, 1888. Mary Jane Kelly, Friday, November 9th, 1888. These four might be Jack's victims. They might not be. Rose Milette, Thursday, December 20th, 1888. Alice McKenzie, Wednesday, July 17th, 1889. The Pynchon Street Torso. Unfortunately, we just don't know who it was, but some poor woman died. Tuesday, September 10th, 1889. Francis Cole, Friday, February 13th, 1891. And now it's your turn. I want you to weigh in. Do you think the diary is real and confirms the identity of Jack the Ripper? Or is it a hoax? Consider this your official invitation to join the Based on a True Story Facebook group and share your thoughts with the community. You can also find me on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-A-F-E-B. Thanks. So much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.